welcome to the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, email it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and check us out on Instagram. Instagram.com slash Great Detectives. I do encourage you to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss a new episode. Uh, you can do so through your favorite podcast software, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or the Amazon Music app at Amazon.com slash OTR Detectives. And I also want to encourage you to pick up your Famous Investigator t-shirt over at Famous.GreatDetectives.net. Have until November 20 to order in order to get them by Christmas. Go over to famous.greatdetectives.net. Well, today we're going to bring you a special episode of Nightbeat. And this is one of four episodes of Nightbeat that NBC rebroadcast in the spring of 1950. These episodes were meant to highlight not beat as a series and to introduce it to listeners and allow the stars of other detective programs to also promote not beat as well as their own show. To me, it did not make any sense to play these episodes when we went through not because all of the episodes that were rebroadcast we had the original episodes in circulation and they were fairly recent episodes so with that little special extra commercial message i also didn't want to not play the rebroadcast either And so what we have done is we played the other rebroadcast when we were playing the other series promoted. So we played one of the rebroadcasts when we were doing Christopher London, and another one when we were doing Dragnet, and another when we were doing Richard Diamond. We're playing this episode now because it was set to be cross-promotion for Dangerous Assignment. So let's go ahead and take a listen to this one. This was originally rebroadcast on April 9th, 1950, and the title is Not is a Weapon. The National Broadcasting Company wishes to call your attention to a program regularly heard on Monday evenings at 10 p.m. New York time over most of these stations. We invite you now to listen, evaluate, and perhaps become a fan of this regularly scheduled Monday night program. Here then, for your approval, is... Night Beat. Hi, this is Randy Stone. I cover the night beat for the Chicago Star. Stories start in many different ways. Tonight's story began when one man tried to destroy another with the strangest weapon of all, darkness. Night Beat, starring Frank Lovejoy as Randy Stone. When your job is to walk into the darkness and discover what makes a city tick, you pick up some mighty strange friends. The winos dreaming of a muscatel paradise and cold, dark doorways. The petty larceny boys with their fast deals. 
The painted little dames defying the world with their brassy laughter. The homeless and the hopeless. In the city, the night is for the lost. Sometimes you feel a hunger to be with someone of the everyday world. Some nice, well-adjusted soul who's got a reason for waking up tomorrow morning. I guess that's why I dropped in to see Bessie Chatfield tonight. Bessie, a little gray-haired librarian who has charge of a small storefront library on Huron Street. No one around this time of night but Bessie and a young fellow in a gray raincoat alone at a reading table. Mr. Stone! Why, we haven't seen you, oh, in such a long time. (laughs) Well, since Forever Amber, you haven't had the kind of high-type literature that interests me. (laughs) (laughs) And when you finally do drop in, look what time you get here. Ten o'clock. Right when I have to go over and start turning off the light. Oh, I timed it that way so I could get you behind these bookcases away from that fellow at the reading desk. (laughs) I'm afraid your timing is about 35 years off, Mr. Stone. Oh, these light switches, why do they always put them so high up? Aren't you going to tell that fellow it's time to go home? (laughs) This is the way we tell them. We flick off the lights and then flick them on again. First, off like this. No! Don't do that, no! What? Turn the lights on quick. Let me handle this. What was the idea of doing that, mister? Is that supposed to be smart or something? Oh, now, take it easy, fella. Take it easy. he pay you to do it? Is that the deal? Hmm? You tell George Brewster that the game doesn't amuse me anymore. You tell him if he keeps it up, I'll... I'll kill him. I turned the lights out. It's closing time. What? Closing time? Oh. Yes, of course. What's wrong with you, buddy? Are you sick or sick? Yeah, that's me. Sick. Only mine is a... is a childhood disease. Childhood. Childhood. Now, what in the world was that? Ever seen him before? He's come in a couple of times this week. Spent all his time reading some reference books at the table. Seemed to be such a nice, polite young man. Considerate, kindly. Hmm, let's, let's take a look at those books. My heavens, my heart is beating a mile a minute. Did you see his face? It frightened me. He was even more scared than we were. Of what? These are the books he was reading? Yes. The Mind in Limbo, Abnormal Psychology, Modern Psychiatry. Why would he want books like this? Maybe he was looking for somebody in these books. Who? Himself, Bessie. Probably himself. Bessie was pretty upset, so after she locked up for the night, I started walking her to the elevated station over on Lake Street. We'd walked a couple of blocks through the dark, empty streets when suddenly Bessie grabbed my arm. Mr. Stone, that man down the street, looking into that store window, Hmm? that's him. Oh, yes, same gray raincoat, same lad. And look, Mr. Stone, what's that in his hand? It's a piece of pipe or something. He's breaking that store window. Yes, you wait right here, honey. Oh, because... The fellow was reaching through the broken window glass for whatever it was that had struck his fancy. He heard me coming and he turned toward me. The wan streetlight did something to his face. It seemed twisted and torn. Blood was running down his hand where the glass had cut him. Then I saw what he'd taken from the window. A gun. What's the idea, Hal? He spun around and he started running for the elevated station down the block. And in the best tradition of the Rover boys, I stayed right on his tail. He turned back to see how I was doing and stumbled over a trash can near the curb. I up with an arm. Let go of me. 
Leave me alone. Let go of me. He slashed the gun across my face and began running again. I stopped long enough to take a quick inventory of my teeth. Up above, I heard the elevator train coming into the station. The young fellow had reached the station steps and was going up fast, trying to make that train. I reached for one of his legs. He turned and gave it to me right in the stomach. I folded up, and I just sat there, listening to the train pull away with a fellow on it, and remembering what Bessie had said about him being such a nice, polite young man. After a while, I began to feel somewhat human again. I notified the police what had happened, and they sent a squad car out. After they left, I remembered something. A name this nice, polite young man had been throwing around. George Brewster. I found a phone book in a cigar store. There were three George Brewsters. The first number didn't answer. I tried the second. Hello? I'd like to speak to George Brewster. Oh, he's not in right now. Is there any message? Uh, Who is this? I'm his sister. Well, if this is the right George Brewster, something is wrong. Is there any reason why a young fellow would want to kill your brother? Oh, that would be Morrison. Oh, I warned you. Morrison, huh? Tom Morrison. Where does he live? Uh, our old apartment, 612 Hamlin Avenue. What makes you think he wants to kill George? Well, this character broke into a store tonight and stole a gun. I sort of think he had your brother in mind when he did it. Oh, Well, lady, I know what I'm going to do. As fast as I hang up and can get another nickel into this phone, I'm going to call the police. Oh, I feel so bad. It's not really Morrison's fault, poor man. No, no, no. He's just a prince of a fellow. Goodbye, lady. I've got to make that call. But then it turned out I didn't have a nickel. And on the way to the counter for change, I started wondering why the sister of the man he was going to kill felt sorry for Morrison. And why Bessie thought he was such a sweet character. And well, the night was young. 612 Hamlin Avenue couldn't wait, and I could call the cops later. 612 North Hamlin Avenue was a second-floor flat on the north side. I got there a few minutes after 11. All the windows were lit up. I rang the bell and waited. I felt a little bead of sweat zigzagging down my face like it didn't have any place to go. Yes, Oh, it's you. No, let's not close the door just yet. In fact, let's push it open all the way. What do you want? My two front teeth and a few ribs. Get out of here. Now look, pal, don't tempt me. Wait a minute. Now look. I came against my better judgment to listen to what you've got to say. If I leave now, the only place I'm going is the nearest police station. Police station. I guess maybe that would be the best. Hmm? Otherwise, I don't know what's going to happen. Yes, I get it. I guess you better call the police, mister. What do you think you're doing? Calling my bluff? The phone's right behind you. Okay, buddy. You asked for it. You're sure this is the way you want it? Yeah, it's better this way. I'm at the end of my rope. I don't want to kill him. George Brewster? Yes, George Brewster. I know how it'll end if he doesn't stop. Stop what? You call the police, mister. You'd be doing me a favor. Since when have I got to do you favors? Why aren't you calling? I'm an Eagle Scout in good standing, and I haven't done my good deed for today. Well, you can't help me, whoever you are. Stone is the name. What makes you so sure that I can't? Thanks for even wanting to. After the bad time I gave you. Bad time? That's the understatement of the year. Well, I was panic-stricken. He's got me half crazy. What have you got to lose if you tell me about it? No. Okay. Oh, wait, wait. I don't know. I... I'm like a drowning man grasping at straws. 
Look, maybe if you talked to Brewster, told him what he's doing to me, maybe maybe then he'd leave me alone. Well, you never can tell, but I'd have to know what I'm talking about. Quite a story, mister. These lights. Look at them. Bright as the sun, aren't they? Lamps. Overhead chandeliers. Just look at them. I'd hate to see your light bills. Well, like some men need drugs. That's how I need these lights. Come again? My sanity depends on it. On these My... lights? Yes. You see, it's a sickness. We've even got a name for it. Noctophobia, it's called. It's fear of darkness. Fear of darkness? But that's for kids. It... I'm sorry. Don't be. I quite agree. Kids. Or neurotic women. But in a man of my age, it's quite ridiculous. Only when the day starts drawing to a close, when the night starts crowding in. Have you been to doctors? Sure, I've been to doctors. They tell me I shouldn't feel too badly. Plenty of people with my trouble. Hangover from childhood and illness, like heart trouble is an illness. I'll take the heart trouble. Maybe you haven't gone to the right kind of doctor. Maybe psychiatry could help you. Nothing is going to help me. George Brewster's going to see to that. What about this Brewster? He's trying to destroy me. <laughs> With the strangest weapon of all. The strangest weapon of all? Yes. His weapon is the night. NBC is bringing you an encore performance of Night Beat, starring Frank Lovejoy as Randy Stone. Before continuing with our story, here is the star of another NBC program, Brian Donlevy. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be listening here with you to Night Beat. This encore performance is NBC's way of introducing you to one of its regularly scheduled Monday night broadcasts. If you're enjoying Night Beat today, why not make it a habit to listen to the series each week in its regular time period? You'll find Night Beat just ahead of my own adventure series, Dangerous Assignment, every Monday. So, if you enjoy adventure and mystery, give a listen to Night Beat and Dangerous Assignment tomorrow night and every Monday night on most of these NBC stations. But now, let's listen again to Randy Stone. It was a weird feeling standing in Morrison's brilliantly lighted parlor listening to him tell me about his terror of darkness. A sturdy, healthy-looking man trapped by a childhood nightmare. I felt guilty listening to him like I was eavesdropping into a dark corner of his mind that was nobody's business but his own. And yet he had to tell me because he needed help. Because George Brewster was using Morrison's fear to destroy him. I was sent to Chicago by our company to replace Brewster. Until he found out why I was here, he couldn't do enough for me. He even got me this apartment. Oh, greater love hath no man. And then he found out what the setup was, and he changed fast enough. How did he find out about this fear of yours? I'm trying to tell you how. The other night, the two of us were working alone in the big vault down at the office. Working on some old account. And the overhead light. It blew out. Mm -hmm. Well, it was so sudden, I couldn't help myself. I tried to keep calm, but... It's like something tearing me to pieces inside. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't... Finally, I had to run. So he found out about... No, no, he wasn't sure. But it started him thinking. Yeah? The next afternoon, he came over to my desk. He was jovial, friendly, like he'd been at the beginning. Saying we'd been at each other's throats long enough. Inviting me to have dinner with him that night. 
Right from work, we went to his favorite spot on the north side. It was a place called the Catacombs. I began feeling uneasy the moment I entered. How do you like this place, Tom? That's okay. It's fine. Been a favorite of mine for years. One spot in particular, the wine cellar. Uh, how do you feel about wine? I like it all right. Come on with me. I'm a wine man from way back. Oh, I say, George, I uh, wanted to talk to you about that little outburst last night. They have a different wine cellar with a different temperature for each type of wine. I haven't been sleeping very well, you me? see. Me? I prefer Riesling myself. Here we are. Huh? Uh, the white wine cellar. We'll select our own brand for our supper. Here, I'll open the door. This is a privilege only an old customer like me can get away with. Come on. Dark down there. That's why they've got this candle here on the ledge. Got a match? I... A match, Tom? Mm. Yeah. Here. Okay. Get this candle going. Good. Now, let's go downstairs. George, uh, you think we should do this on our own? Done it hundreds of times. Been coming here for the last ten years. Now, let's go down these stairs. Careful. Uh... I was explaining about last night. Candle casts funny shadows, doesn't it? Notice how cool it is? Twenty feet below street level. Look, I want to talk to you about last night, George. I uh, don't want any misunderstanding. Hmm? It's just that I've been working pretty hard. Look, to see... Tom, would it make you feel any better if you showed me you're not afraid of the dark? Okay. I'll blow out the candle. Just what are you trying to prove, Brewster? Nothing at all. It's your idea. Where are those matches I gave you? You gave me some matches? I must have lost them. It's not going to work, Brewster. I'm not insane, you know. I can stay down here until you're quite Funny, satisfied. isn't it, about the darkness? The way it seems to close in on you. The way you start thinking you can't breathe. I can see how someone could... What's the matter? This is ridiculous. Something so suffocating about a dark room. Stop it. Stop it. Only the heavy, smothering blackness. Stop it. Where are you going, Tom? Anything wrong? <laughs> Anything wrong? Anything wrong? Anything wrong. I ran out of that cellar like a scared kid. That was a rotten thing for him to do. Like a kid playing Halloween jokes. He's fighting for his job, Stone. He's not so young anymore. He can't start all over again. So he'll do anything. Great. I'm sure he's told the people down at work. I'm sure they're all laughing at me behind my back. You don't know what that does to me. I can imagine. Today I found a new desk lamp on my desk, courtesy of George Brewster. Every day, something like that. Did you ask him why he's doing it? He won't admit he's doing anything. Says it's all my imagination that maybe I ought to see a doctor. Or better still, maybe a change of climate would help. I'd leave town in a minute. Only my future's at stake, too. And before I let him drive me crazy, I'll kill him. Well, I'm going now. I'm going to talk to this bird. Where does he live? Out in the suburbs, Lake Forest. Lives with his sister. All right, I'll give you a ring as soon as I've seen him. I hope you can do some good, Mr. Stone. Yeah. Oh, say. I almost forgot something. What? That gun you made off with. I... Maybe if we're lucky, we can talk the store owner out of pressing charges. I'll try. It <laughs> was a crazy thing to do, I was so desperate. Wouldn't have done you much good. When they put them in the window, they never loaded. I'll let you in on a secret. If I hadn't known that, I wouldn't have been such a hero coming here tonight. I'll let you in on a secret, Mrs. Stone. 
You can get bullets without a license. The gun's loaded now. <laughs> oh, great. Go and get it for me. All right. Yes, I want to give it to you. It's in my bedroom. He started for the bedroom, and then it was almost like a comedy routine where, after the big build-up, the punchline comes out right on cue. The moment he entered the other room, every light in the house suddenly went out. What happened to the lights? Take it easy. Now, where's the fuse box? I don't know. I've never had occasion to use it. Besides, if it was the fuse, all the lights wouldn't go out. It wasn't you. Use your head. How could I do it? I'm getting out of here. The hall light's out, too. Stone. Maybe something went wrong with the central wiring. But why should it happen exactly now? Wait. Huh? The downstairs apartment. Their lights are on. If it was the wire... All right, all right. Let's ask them where the fuse box is. Mr. Morrison. Uh, my lights went out. It might be a fuse. Where are the fuse boxes for these apartments, do you know? Uh, out in the back. I'll get a flashlight and show you. Here we are. The fuse box is right here below our meters. Whenever the people from the light company come out, they have a dickens of a time finding it. Will you hold the flashlight steady. Let me take a look. Wait a minute, Stone. Lower the flashlight just a little. Huh? It's not the fuse. Look at the master switch on my meter. Look at the one of Mrs. Graham's. Why, somebody pulled your switch down to off. Yes. Yes, someone surely did. Oh, here, let me push it up. There. And look upstairs. All your lights are on again. Probably some kids playing a joke. How do you suppose the rascals ever found it? It's too well hidden. Well, I, I have a theory all kids come equipped with special radar for finding things like this. Mrs. Graham. Tell this gentleman who used to live in my apartment before I did. Why? Tell him. Why, you know. He even got the apartment for you. Your friend, Mr. Brewster. But what is Tom, that, that doesn't prove he did it. For me, it does, Stone. For me, it does. Morrison went around to the front of his house and up the stairs to his flat. I waited in the hallway until he came down again. He looked different. His face was hard and set. His eyes were like chunks of glass punched into the flesh. What are you waiting for, Stone? Well, when we were so rudely interrupted, you were going for the gun. I've got it now. Oh, yeah. Well, hand it over and I'll bring it back. No, thanks. Well, where are you going and what are you going to do? I'm fighting for my sanity and my life. He's never going to do this to me again. Never. I can't let you do that. You're going to have to. The minute you leave here, I'm going to call every cop in the book. Yes, that's what you do, isn't it? Yeah. Then I'd better give you the gun. This could become habit forming. I dropped to my knees in the hallway, and then the hallway subdivided like something under a microscope, and there were two hallways, and then there were four. And then everywhere I looked, there were hallways. Morrison tried to push me aside to get by me, only it was a whole circle of Morrison's. I grabbed at his legs to hold him back. It was like grabbing at a centipede. And then all the Morrisons and all the hallways brought all their guns down on my one poor head. And that was it, brothers and sisters. That was it. Feeling better, Mr. Stone? Oh, if I felt any better, I'd call the embalmer. Oh, what a business. I heard a commotion and I came out and you were lying here. Is this a head or a cantaloupe? Oh. How did it happen? And where's Mr. Morrison? Oh, Morrison, yeah. 
How long ago did you hear this commotion? Just a couple of minutes ago. Oh, you came out of it real fast. Yeah, an iron constitution. Have you got a phone? Yes, but don't you think you better... Come on, lady, grab my head, put it back on nice and neat, and let's get to that phone. Hello? This is the fellow who called you before, Miss Brewster, about Morrison and your brother. Oh, yes. He's not there yet, huh? I don't mean your brother, I mean Morrison. What? Yes, yes, he sure is. Now, give me your address. The minute you hang up, get away from your house as fast as you can. Morrison's got a gun, he's half crazy. Maybe we should call the police. Maybe we should, but I'm not going to. They'd throw the book at him ten years for attempted murder. I think I can stop him before he does anything. I can't tell you how sorry I am about this. Lady, you and your brother should be. The cab got me out to the Lake Forest house in less than 20 minutes. The house was on a hill, and the flagstone path wound round and round for a city block until it reached the front porch. As I ran up the walk, my head started rattling like a handful of pennies in a tin cup. I felt weak and tired. All the time, I tried not to think about what I might find when I reached the house. And now I was at the end of the path, walking toward the front porch. A nerve deep in my throat started jangling like a burglar alarm. The house was in darkness. And Morrison was standing beneath a little porch light, his gun pointed right at me. You won't quit, will you, Stone? What have you done with him, Tom? He hasn't done anything with him yet, Mr. Stone. Huh? Who... I'm sitting over here at the end of the porch. I'm George's sister. Oh. I didn't see you in the dark. Why didn't you get away like I told you? Please. I won't hurt her. It's him. He'll be coming along soon. George should never have done what he did. I begged him not to. To take advantage of a man's weakness. Well, Mr. Brewster is coming home. What? His car is stopping at the bottom of the hill. Now he's starting the long climb. Morrison, listen you to me. You just it. sit there, the both of you. And I must insist that you be very quiet. Please listen to me. Please. Please. Keep coming up that path, Brewster. It's a long, long way. You must listen to me. Morrison, you waiting near the porch doing. light, the gun in his hand. George hurt you. We shouldn't have done Far that. below the small figure what of George Brewster, so making the long, slow climb. You're going to kill George because he found out about your fear. But don't you see? George is afraid, too, of being 53. Brewster had stopped at the first landing to catch his drain. breath. That's now he was climbing he up the you. path again. His back was Maybe a hundred steps from he his death. He was fighting for his life. Just I found as you were myself counting the steps. Closer. Why? Why are Closer. you afraid of the dark, Mr. Martin? Don't you see? If you weren't afraid, George couldn't hurt you anymore. Please, listen to me. Keep your voice down. If you try to warn him, you both die too. Keep coming, Brewster. What yes, is there to yes, fear Yes, he kept coming. No more than the seventy steps now. In All it does the is girl's hide the voice world going on and on, and Brewster getting closer. If you believe Less than in fifty God, steps now. If you believe in your own steps. soul, how can you fear the 25. night? What is there in the darkness that can hurt you? There's such peace in the darkness. After the heat of day has gone, the rush, the tumult, the struggle, you can breathe easy again. You can let the tightness inside unwind. He's almost close enough. Listen to me. Please listen. 
It's not going to work, Miss Brewster. I'm going to try and wait. Miss Brewster, stay where you are, Miss. No. You must see me in the light. I tell you, stay where you are. Um, look at her. I didn't realize. I'm not afraid. What right have you to fear? Julie, is that you on the porch? What right have you to fear, Miss Tamara? What right? What a long climb. I must be getting old. What are you doing here, Morrison? And who's this? Oh, don't mind me. I just came along for the ride. What's this all about? I... I just came to... to say goodbye, Brewster. You leaving? Yes. I'm going back and tell them you've done a good job here. But it's not fair to replace you after so many years. You sure nobody scared you away, Morrison? Well, look at him, Brewster. Does he look like he's afraid? I don't know if Julie cured Morrison of his fear of darkness. Cure is a pretty strong word. But maybe she helped. I kind of think so. I do know this. It's going to be mighty hard for Tom to fear the darkness knowing Julie is not afraid. But neither Tom nor I will ever forget what we saw as that porch light lit up her face. Julie Brewster, who did not fear the darkness, was blind. And now that part of the story they always print in heavy type, the moral. And don't smile so indulgently. Morals are very nice things. Some of my best friends have morals. <laughs> Seriously, Julie's whole life is a moral in itself. And trying to top it is like trying to follow Al Jolson with a mammy song. The best you can do is tip your hat to the fellow who wrote, Out of the night that covers me, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. He must have had someone like Julie in mind. Four o'clock in the morning, a stale cup of coffee, a tired sandwich, a story to dictate, and I worry about my unconquerable soul. Honey. Copy, boy. Nightbeat, the new dramatic series, stars Frank Lovejoy as Randy Stone. Nightbeat is written by Larry Marcus and directed by Warren Lewis. Music by Frank Worth. David Ellis played Tom. Lorene Tuttle was Ruth. Others in the cast were Charles Seal, Margaret Brayton, and Ruth Parrott. Frank Lovejoy will next be seen in Milton Sperling's production, Rock Bottom, released by Warner Brothers. NBC has presented for your approval a special edition of Night Beat to acquaint you with this regularly scheduled Monday evening program. If you have enjoyed this repeat broadcast, join the millions of listeners who each Monday tune for Adventure in Mystery on the regular Night Beat series. Listen then tomorrow night, when again you will hear Frank Lovejoy as Randy Stone in another great action-packed story on Night Beat.
our music today, hear Harvest of Stars and American Album on NBC. Welcome back. This program was originally broadcast on February 13th of 1950, so 72 years ago. And it deals with things like mental health, bullying at work, you know, stuff that we don't have to worry about these days. Or perhaps we do. And I think there are some interesting points in this episode, although I can't understand why some people might be turned off a bit by the episode. Because there are some things that Ruth said that don't quite seem right. Like when she said that Morrison and Brewster were acting out of similar motives. And of course, the big one would be her statement of what right do you have to be afraid? And we can have a tendency in our 21st century world to take statements and simplify them down to their most horrible interpretation. I could imagine someone listening to this episode and translating this as people with mental health issues. Get over it because blonde people exist. But I don't think that's what the story was going for. I don't think that's the point at all. There are a couple of things that we should consider. The first is that the content of what Ruth is saying may not be as important as the fact that she is saying it. Some of the things she says seem very cliched, but as human beings, most of our communication doesn't come from the content of what we're saying. And let's be honest, some situations, all we have are the cliches. And while there are some hurtful ones to avoid, it can be better to communicate to people that you care in the only way you can and that you care sincerely, and that will matter even if what you're saying is not particularly original. In this case, who she was and that she really cared the way she lived her life mattered a lot more than what she was saying. The other thing we need to understand is that Morrison's greatest fear was not the fear of the dark. All things considered, this was a relatively easy to manage fear if someone's not trying to trigger it. His biggest fear was his secret being revealed. Randy is probably one of the most sensitive and understanding people you'll find in a hard-boiled business like the newspaper gay. But he had no context for understanding what Morrison was going through, saying that it was a kid's issue. And Morrison made it clear that he was thoroughly ashamed of himself for suffering with it. And he mentioned that it is an affliction that it's kids and a few women. And indeed, to this day, this particular disorder is much more common in women than in men. That shame really makes him insecure. And you heard that in the conversation that Morrison and Brewster had where, as far as Morrison knew, Brewster wasn't even thinking about the first incident when they went to that restaurant with the seller. You would be surprised how much stuff people will just let past 
and seemingly forget about because it wasn't that big a deal to them. However, if you're insecure about something, you'll do this thing where hours or days later, you'll call people's attention to this thing that you're insecure about so you can explain it, which will then cause them to pay attention to it. I speak as someone who's done that type of thing a time or two. So in Morrison, you've got this guy, smart, who relates well to other people, and who has the physique and look so that he's right out of central casting to be a leader in the business world. But he has this secret condition, which he sure will destroy everyone's opinion about him and destroy his image of himself. And really, him getting the gun is, I think it's less about his fears than his anger and his desire for revenge on a man who, in his mind, humiliated him. And this is probably the point where I think there is a bit of a valid comparison between Morrison and Brewster. Both are motivated by their insecurity. For Brewster, the idea of losing his position to a younger man and having to start again as nothing without his position, without his influence as an older man, Morrison is a threat to his sense of identity. And I think to Morrison... Ruth spoke not because she had some brilliant words of wisdom, but because she was a person who didn't let others define her and was secure in who she was. In one way, even though she was blind, of the three characters we meet that night, she was the one who actually lived in light. And I think her example encouraged Morrison not to let Brewster's insecurities define him. In many ways, we'd like to see the bad guy get it in the end. And part of that desire for justice is what I like about doing detective programs. But Nightbeat deals a lot more in the human element. And so we don't get a typical ending. There can be something quite satisfying and cathartic when the villain gets his. But for Morrison, I think it's more important that he triumphs over his own fears and insecurities, which led him to the point of considering murder, and shows that strength by showing kindness to Brewster. He leaves him his position and his sense of identity that is so vested in holding on to that position. Brewster may come out the worst of all because he doesn't fully even understand what happened, what he did, what he almost set in motion, i.e. his own death. His fears, his insecurities remain below the surface, waiting to manifest the next time someone becomes a threat to his own sense of personal worth and identity. The one thing I like least about this is that Morrison kind of tells a whopper to his company and will have to bite his tongue afterwards. Hey, I know, we can send this guy to the Chicago branch. He's a really young, ambitious go-getter. Learn a lot there. 
Yeah, yeah, I could. And he'll grow if the manager doesn't find out his deepest, darkest secret and torture him with it. Alright, well now it's time to thank our Patreon supporter of the day. And I want to go ahead and thank Jim. Jim's been one of our Patreon supporters since April of 2021 currently supporting us at the rookie level of $2 or more per month. Thanks so much for your support, Jim. And that will do it for today. I do encourage you to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. You can subscribe with your favorite software, whether it's Apple, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or the Amazon Music app at amazon.com slash otrdetectives. Well, join us back here tomorrow for an episode of Sam Spade, where... All right, turn around. Lieutenant! Well, look, I'm not a... Yeah, yeah. Hey, what's this? Uh-huh. Lieutenant! All right, come on, you. Ah, who's that? Mike McGinnis, Lieutenant. Found this guy hiding on that cruiser to our starboard. Oh, good work, McGinnis. Have a gun on him, huh? Yeah, a Webley Vickers. That's it. Hmm? Well, now, what's your name? You... Huh? Yeah, Dundee, it's me. Uh-huh. Who are you working for, Sam? Well, you know I can't tell you that, Donnie, but I'll give you a hint. The name he gave me was J. Wellington Starr. Mm-hmm. Where'd you get this gun? Starr hired me to recover it. It was stolen from him. I found it in a hawk shop. That's all I know. Is he dead? That's right. The stiff's in the cabin. Come on. Good evening, all. <laughs> Oh, now, please, Now, please. now, Mrs. Starr, we mustn't be hysterical. Do you identify this man? Oh, no, that's him. The face, the porthole. He was wearing a gray hat, I remember now. Oh, now, that's a very serious statement, Mrs. Starr. Are you absolutely sure of your identification? Oh, Lieutenant, that's the man who shot my husband. I never forget a face. Now, now, please, Mrs. Starr. Mrs. Starr. Why, why this perfidious formality suddenly? Well, look, Donnie, you don't seriously... Sam, I, I don't know what to think. That is true. Nodal ballistics tell me the slug in the body didn't come from this gun. Oh, well, it did, Dundee. Oh, you see, he admits it. Is that what you're doing, Sam? I don't make any statement without my lawyer, but this gun smells like cordite, and this dame here smells like frame. I... What's she got against you? I don't know. I never saw her before in my entire V. Oh, Sam, how can you say that? After all we've been to each other, the promises you made. We're in this together, darling. You shot him. All right, all right, but because because I inflamed your passions. But I'll stand by you. That's the only You're decent You're a fine, thing. brave... I hope you'll be with us then. In the meantime, do send your comments to box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and check us out on Instagram, instagram.com slash greatdetectives from Boise, Idaho. This is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.